Hello and welcome to Holmes Borden and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. I'm going to quote from a letter that Watson wrote to Mycroft Holmes on August 3, 1892. And I'm going to follow that with another fragment of a letter that he wrote five days later. And then I will finish this episode by talking about Sherlock's thinking as of August 8, four days after the murder. My dear Mycroft, I shall begin this report by noting that I have seen no evidence of renewed drug use. Sherlock has kept faith with me and has not once objected to my supervision, which, as you are aware, permits me to conduct periodic searches of his luggage and of his person. Perhaps we are witnessing an evolution in his character into a new and humble Sherlock. I have kept by his side whenever possible, but I am sure you would agree that he needs some freedom of movement in order to follow out his investigation. He continues to employ a variety of disguises whenever he deems it advantageous. I am sure that, in those instances, my presence would prove a hindrance. Shortly after we disembarked, we traveled to Philadelphia and passed several days with my cousin. I also renewed the acquaintance of some friends from my time at the medical school. During our visit, Sherlock enjoyed a fair amount of liberty. He immersed himself in the city's history and its role in the rebellion, which they call the revolution. He was thus inspired to discourse upon Anglo-American relations. I confess that I did not give it my full attention, but at the same time, I was overjoyed to see the old Sherlock re-emerge. Sherlock has displayed enormous energy in his efforts to track this villain. It has been a joy to witness that keen and eager mind amassing and sorting information, discarding that which is irrelevant and setting aside for the present that which that he might later find to be of use. I must disclose that while Sherlock remains full of anticipation and resolve in this pursuit, I find myself burdened by a presentiment of coming horror. I am ever conscious of shadows all round us. This is due largely to Sherlock's expectation that we will not lay this devil by the heels until he first breaks cover. As a result, we must possess our souls in patience and wait for him to strike again. I endeavor not to dwell upon such morbid thoughts, but I have not been entirely successful. The prospect of additional mayhem has left an unpleasant effect upon my mind. We have passed a pleasant few days with the Reverend Endicott Peabody and his wife in Groton, a village some 30 miles northwest of Boston. Both Mr. Peabody and his wife are in the highest degree forthright, even taking into account that they are Americans, and they continually surprise me with the directness of their speech. I knew virtually nothing of this family prior to our arrival, except that some eight years ago Peabody had founded a boys' school in this locale. It seems to have proved a great success, as evidenced by a steady increase in the student body from year to year. Sherlock and I are housed in a newly constructed dormitory, and we have enjoyed our rambles through the countryside. Yesterday, Sherlock accompanied Mr. Peabody to Boston, to make some inquiries regarding any English clergy who may have recently visited Massachusetts. I was not needed, so I remained behind and was afforded the opportunity to speak with Mrs. Peabody regarding her husband's history. 
As I have noted, Mrs. Peabody is a remarkably candid woman, and she wasted no time communicating the substance of her husband's prior dealings with your family. She quickly hit upon the topic of your youngest brother, Orville, and, observing my reaction, realized that I had no prior awareness of his existence. She saw no reason to withhold such knowledge from me and thus proceeded with a full account, at least as she understood it. Although she had never met him, she described your brother as sweet, intelligent, and of a spiritual nature, and led me to believe that he had been a close friend of her husband's during their time at Cheltenham. She informed me that Orville had begun to exhibit symptoms of madness as he was preparing to enter Cambridge. Apparently, he had been a guest at the Peabody home during numerous holidays, and was a favorite of the family, particularly the parents. I understand that Sherlock would also visit on occasion after he had left Cambridge and found rooms in London. She told me that Orville's condition deteriorated quickly, and as a consequence, your family placed him in an asylum where he remained for some years until his premature death. I believe that Mrs. Peabody would have given me the exact circumstances attendant upon his passing had she but known them. She indicated further that Sherlock had begun to dabble in cocaine and morphine around this time, in an apparent attempt to escape the emotional pain that naturally resulted from your brother's illness. Although she made some attempt at discretion, it was evident that her husband and his family had been rebuffed in their attempts to offer your family aid, be it financial, emotional, or spiritual. On top of all else, she stated, very plainly, that her husband had offered Sherlock a position at his school effective immediately. Apparently, Mr. Peabody is satisfied that Sherlock has made a complete recovery from his active addiction, although he recognizes that your brother is possessed of eccentric habits He believes that they would prove no hindrance to a successful career as a schoolmaster. I was greatly surprised to hear all this, and it was some seconds before I could venture a reply. I finally managed, in a stammering fashion, to express my reservations. I spoke quite plainly, insisting that Sherlock would never subject himself to oversight, nor would he forfeit his independence regardless of the circumstances. Mr. Peabody, as you may have heard, possesses a forceful personality which, in its own way, is the equal of your brother's. If Sherlock were, for some reason, inclined to accept this offer, I do not doubt that it would result in an unceasing battle of wills between employer and employee, and it would, I am convinced, result in Sherlock's premature departure. I am not sure that Mrs. Peabody wholly disagreed with my views on the matter. In fact, I sensed that she was inclined more to my position than she was to her husband's. Having said that, she was, of course, duty-bound to support him, and so assured me that Mr. Peabody was willing to make accommodations to the teaching styles and personal habits of his master's, particularly if they compensated for any deficiencies with corresponding strengths. I was left with the impression that Mr. Peabody wishes to bring Sherlock round in a spiritual sense. He takes the view that Sherlock's problems can be solved by cultivating a closer bond with Christ. I have no doubt that Mr. Peabody's faith supplies him with a constant source of strength and joy, 
and that he wishes to share his experiences with all who cross his path. Needless to say, all of this was unexpected and left me with a great deal to contemplate. I must leave off here. I shall write again at the next opportunity, and until then, I remain faithfully yours, John H. Watson. Now, I have a fragment, a pretty long fragment from another letter that he wrote, and I need to explain that I don't have, obviously, the original letters that he sent to Mycroft. He drafted them, and then he wrote, obviously, a final version, which he mailed off. The first one was dated August 3rd, 1892. This is August 8th. Dear Mycroft, it appears that we are on that villain's trail at last, close at his heels. Unfortunately, this development has come at the cost of two lives. You may possibly have heard about the shocking murders that recently occurred in the city of Fall River, which is located some 50 miles south of Boston. An elderly couple were struck down in their home in broad daylight. The attacks were brutal and horrific, and the victims were battered repeatedly with a hatchet. The husband's face was damaged beyond recognition. The wife received a greater number of blows, by all accounts, although they were directed almost entirely to the back of her skull. Her head was smashed to pulp. In both cases, the assailant had gone on beating the victims long after they were dead. These were furious assaults. The wife's blood and brains were strewn about the room. As you can imagine, Sherlock was greatly excited upon hearing the news, which appeared that same day in the evening editions of all the available papers. They have been full of the tragedy ever since. We happened to be in Boston on the day of the murders, having engaged rooms at the Union Club, courtesy of Mr. Peabody. Sherlock had intended to follow certain lines of inquiry at the local shipping offices. As you would expect, we abandoned this thread, and on the following morning, we found ourselves on the first train to Fall River. Upon arriving, we were fortunate to obtain lodging at a local hotel, where I expect that we will remain for the near future. Sherlock is convinced that this murder, or murders, are the work of Jabez Moriarty. Sherlock says, You can always recognize a master by the sweep of his brush. This is a Moriarty. I did not write you earlier because Sherlock has been keeping me employed all hours with a long list of tasks. Of course, he has been far busier than I. His press credentials have been most beneficial and have permitted him access to a number of informal gatherings with the local chief of police, a self-important and incompetent fellow by the name of Hilliard. In addition, he has enjoyed a close rapport with a number of reporters, particularly those from New York City. Also, he has been scouring the newspapers and has made a visual inspection of the exterior of the house, as well as the yard, where the crime occurred. Unfortunately, the house is under constant watch by the local police, and Sherlock has been prevented from entering the building itself. Only now, four days since the murders, has Sherlock taken time to gather his thoughts and consider his way forward. He has shared his impressions to this point, which I shall summarize as follows. And this is where the draft ends, and then what follows are some notes. And so I've taken those notes and I've just put them into my own words. So here's what Sherlock is thinking, what he's told Watson. I'm assuming that Watson did write a final draft of this letter and mail it to Mycroft. I'm not positive. But here's what Sherlock was telling Watson as of August 8th. 
Lizzie clearly had a motive. She wanted to inherit half of her father's fortune, not one-third or less, obviously, and this would only be possible if her stepmother predeceased her father. Lizzie was in the house at the time that her stepmother was murdered, and due to the layout of the house, which everybody now knows because it was printed in one of the articles that has come out during the first three or four days, everybody can see the layout of the house, the floor plan. Due to the layout of the house, she almost certainly would have been aware that the murderer was in the building. She either would have heard the attack as it took place, and that's if she was in her bedroom at the time, or she would have either heard or seen the assailant enter the house and make his way toward the front stairs. Lizzie claims that her stepmother had received a note telling her that somebody was sick and needed her assistance. No one else claims any first-hand knowledge of this note. The note hasn't been found. No one's come forward to acknowledge writing it, delivering it, or sending it. So clearly, as far as Sherlock is concerned, the note looks like a fabrication. In addition, despite discovering her father's badly mangled body, Lizzie showed very little emotion in the immediate aftermath, or for that matter, the rest of the day. She didn't shed any tears. She didn't appear distraught. She wasn't visibly shaken. She demonstrated remarkable composure. And Watson quotes what Sherlock says about this, which is, even the most obtuse investigator would note the absence of the usual feminine ululation. Ululation, I assume, means wailing. After finding her father's body and knowing that he must have been attacked within minutes of her discovering him, she remains in the house while her servant and neighbor are dispatched to find a doctor or a friend, meaning Alice Russell. She never leaves the house at any point. So Sherlock says, how did she know that the murderer had already left? Why wasn't she afraid? He goes on to say that neither Mr. or Mrs. Borden had any known enemies, apparently. Mr. Borden was not involved in any criminal activity, as far as we can tell. The killer didn't take his money, didn't take his watch, didn't take anything, apparently, from the house. And there's no evidence that anybody assaulted Mrs. Borden sexually or attempted to assault her. And then he says, why didn't the murderer attack Lizzie? How did she manage to escape death when she's in the home for the entire morning? He's clearly appalled at the police investigation. He says they failed to secure the crime scene, particularly the barn. They failed to note what Lizzie was wearing when first arrived. Then they wait two days to ask for the dress that she'd been wearing when she discovered her father. And even though they didn't believe that the one she turned over was the real dress... They can't prove that that's the case. Now, having said all this, which if you've been listening to the podcast, you've also heard me say, and you're already familiar with these concerns, Sherlock says, I will agree that in terms of focusing on the proper suspect, yes, the police are correct. Lizzie is obviously the prime suspect. Sherlock says, I really have to conclude already, based on what I've seen, that she was involved somehow. It's a question of building the case and, most importantly, of finding the other person or people who assisted her in carrying out these murders. Now, Sherlock goes on to say or lament that he's in an unusual position. This is not what he's accustomed to because he has no connections with the local police. In virtually every other case that are, that's recorded in the official version and every case I'm aware of, 
the police allow him access to the crime scene. So this is a huge handicap, and he has to figure out how to work around it. The police are not going to let him into the Borden home. He doesn't see how that is ever going to happen. In addition, he doesn't know anyone in the community. He has no contacts. In London, he has a huge network of people that he can go to, not just police, not just Mycroft. He's got the Baker Street Irregulars. Those are the little street urchins that do a lot of his legwork. He's got people he knows all through the city in various capacities, but he doesn't have any of that in Fall River. If he goes to the police and tells them, I suspect that there's this guy named Javis Moriarty, that he's involved, that he has somehow gained influence over Lizzie. He has no reason to expect that the police are going to believe him, that they're going to cooperate. And even worse, there's the possibility that the police might leak his theory, that somebody who hears this tells it to the press. Whether they think it's ridiculous or not, if it gets out to the press, there's the risk that it's going to show up in an article. There's also the risk that there's an informant working for the police who's connected to Moriarty. He doesn't know how much Moriarty's been able to infiltrate the Fall River establishment, the police, the government, business leaders, the powers that be in the city. He has no idea. He doesn't even know what Jabez Moriarty looks like. Just as he and Watson had made a huge attempt and been largely successful in keeping themselves anonymous and avoiding publicity, the same was true for the Moriarty brothers. And this is one of many interesting parallels between these two families. Many of the things that we notice or remark on in terms of how Sherlock and Mycroft approach things, how they looked at things, their methods, etc., we can see similar patterns or traits with the Moriartys. In addition to being unable to pick Jabez Moriarty out of a crowd, Sherlock doesn't even know what name he is currently using. And unlike Sherlock, who's just been in the United States for a matter of a few weeks, for all he knows, Jabez has been in the U.S. for more than a year. And if so, this would have given Jabez time to find his way around and develop his own contacts and perhaps even cultivate an informant or more than one informant on the Fall River Police. The one advantage that Sherlock has over everybody else, including the Fall River Police, is that he knows about Jabez Moriarty. He knows his methods. He knows something about his background. He knows that he's got training as a doctor. So this narrows the field somewhat but it still presents him with a daunting challenge. So at this point, he's telling Watson, he's thinking out loud, and he's saying to Watson, I need to find out how to approach the case in the most advantageous way. And even if I had access to Lizzie, which is probably not going to happen, she doesn't look like the sort of person who's going to admit to anything. So it's clear he already has a grudging respect for her. He's impressed that she doesn't seem at all intimidated by the police, or worried about the possibility of being prosecuted. And I think he's already viewing her as being somewhat reckless, and he sees her as someone who's willing to take unnecessary risks. At the same time, he recognizes that she has a tremendous amount of self-confidence, and he admires her ability to remain calm in very difficult circumstances. Now, in most of the stories that we see in the official records, Sherlock solves the various crimes within a matter of days. 
He rarely goes more than a week without solving a crime from the time that he's first involved in the case. And my guess is that Doyle probably compressed the timelines in order to fit these stories into the required number of pages. At the same time, I do believe that Sherlock was a quick worker. But remember that in all of these other cases, and the only one I think that this doesn't apply to is the episode called The Final Problem, which culminates in Switzerland at the Reichenbach Falls. But other than that, I think every other one of these stories gets solved on English soil. Sherlock knows how to make use of his contacts. He knows his way around. As I said, he doesn't have those advantages. It looks like this case is going to take him more time and it's going to involve more work than he's used to. Now, he doesn't care. That's not going to put him off. It's just more of a challenge. He's going to have to adjust and spend more time thinking about how to approach the case. There's one other problem which I haven't discussed up to this point and which Watson mentions in a passing way. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it, but it's a big problem. And that is, if they actually catch Jabez, How are they going to bring him to justice? It isn't clear from the records I'm reviewing whether Sherlock had been able to obtain an arrest warrant before he left England. Even if he did have one, I guess in theory, he could have somehow gotten the police to lay hands on Jabez or he could have made the equivalent of a citizen's arrest and handcuffed him or something along those lines and then turned him over to the American authorities and said, here's the arrest warrant hold him while I go to the embassy in Washington or the local consulate, or I send a telegraph, over overseas telegraph to my brother, Mycroft, so that we can start working on getting him extradited. That's a best case scenario for him. And if he doesn't have a warrant, if he didn't come over with a warrant, and I think that's probably the case, then his only hope is in the possibility of building a case against Jabez for any American crimes he may have con- he may have committed and then convincing the local police that he is involved and getting them to act on whatever evidence he can present. Now, what he really wants is to bring Jabez to justice. He already thinks that Lizzie is involved somehow, and he doesn't really care. He doesn't care nearly as much about her, about her involvement, or about whether she gets punished. Partly because he's inclined to believe that despite the fact that she seems to have a forceful personality, she, as in his estimation, the way he looks at the case and supposes that things happened, he's pretty certain that whatever she did, it was under the influence of Jabez, that she has fallen under his influence and that what she has done has been at his direction or his suggestion. So at this point, his first challenge is to locate and identify Jabez. And once he does that, then he can start trying to find incriminating evidence to link him to the Borden murders. He has to be careful not to make himself conspicuous because just as he's on the lookout for Jabez, in the same way that he's on the lookout, there's a good chance that Jabez is on the lookout for him. The Moriarty's, even though the organization had been broken up, they still might have some kind of access to information. There might be some remnants of their informant system. There's a decent chance that somebody's gotten word to Jabez that Sherlock is out, that he's through treatment, he's completed treatment, and that he's left England. And if that's the case, then Jabez is probably aware that Sherlock is on his trail. And Sherlock needs to remain in the role of the hunter, not the prey. 
As we know from one of these letters that Watson wrote to Mycroft, Sherlock anticipated before he left England that it would be useful to have English press credentials. And so using his connections, probably with the assistance of Mycroft and possibly with the assistance of Lord Rosebery, it was easy for him to get the, the credentials. And although at this point in our podcast, Sherlock and Watson have only been in Fall River for a couple of days, Sherlock has managed to ingratiate himself with a number of reporters, and he's gained a lot of information about the Bordens and the family in general. And this is how he learns about Lizzie's trip to Europe in the summer and fall of 1890, just two years earlier. And he assumes as soon as he hears that, that she had met Jabez during this trip. He learns that she sailed on the Scythia, which is a Cunard liner that ran between Liverpool and Boston. And he suspects that Moriarty had been working as the ship's doctor, although he's not sure. It's possible she met him in England. It's possible she met him on the continent. It isn't guaranteed that she met him when he was in the role of the ship's doctor, but he guesses that was probably how they met. This seems like a promising lead and he needs to follow up on it. The question is whether he's going to do it himself or he's going to send Watson up to Boston to do it for him. Because there's a Cunard office in Boston and since Cunard was a British company, he shouldn't have any difficulty gaining access to the passenger lists for the two crossings that Lizzie made in June and November 1890. So we're going to stop here. I hope you join me for the next episode. And until then, take care.